So we're going to be looking at seven titles of the Mashiach in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And as we go, we will be looking at scriptures, we'll read them on the screen, so that's why we're not having a reading, because we've been in the same chapters for several weeks, and I really hope that you've already read these chapters, because we've been in them for a couple of weeks. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a couple of Shabbats ago we looked at Yeshua, and what it meant that He was the Christ. That wasn't His last name, it means He was the anointed king of a specific ethnic people group, a specific geographical territory, that of Israel. And of course he's a king on a broader level also. So um, we're going to look at the other title from Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 first. In there it says, uh, the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How do you say son of Abraham in Hebrew? Ben Avraham. Everybody say Ben Avraham. What does that mean? I mean, really, if your average dude in a hotel picks up a Gideon and he starts reading, he's like, okay, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Really? What does that mean? What did it mean to the audience that Matthew was addressing his gospel to, which was primarily a Jewish audience? Let's look at that for a second, because this is, this is who Yeshua is. This is going to be a really fun message, because it's going to be all about Yeshua and who He is. And I get really, like, I get really geared up when, when we get to just look at Yeshua and talk about Him. So this is going to be awesome. Um, in the Jewish world of Yeshua's time... For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, Yeshua throws that phrase around occasionally. He says, yeah, this person is the son of Abraham, a ben Avraham. For instance, remember Zacchaeus, the short guy who climbed a tree so he could get a, get a glimpse of the master? And like, everybody hated Zacchaeus. Like, they hated his guts. He wasn't just a traitor. He was like organizing a bunch of traitors. He would be like, okay, like, some people don't have very positive feelings about the IRS in the States. If you can imagine an IRS that was totally corrupt, that like just took whatever they wanted and left you dry, Zacchaeus would be like one of the like top IRS guys. Okay, that's the idea. And you know what Yeshua said? He said, Zacchaeus, this day, as he is repenting and returning, he's a son of Abraham. He's a Ben Avraham. What did that mean in that context? It meant, you guys, Zacchaeus is one of us. He's part of the family. He's a member of our nation. If, if there are like ins and outs, what that meant to Yeshua and the, the people he was talking to is, he's, he's in. So when Yeshua's emissary Matthew says Yeshua is a Ben Avraham, he's saying, guys, to a Jewish audience, Yeshua is one of us. He's, he's part of the family. He's a member of the nation. He's, he's in. And you know what? Sadly today, often um, that, gets, that gets misrepresented. Uh, a lot of Jewish people, the only vision they've ever had of Jesus is of a really Gentile dude who doesn't really maybe even like Jewish people very much. So remember that. Matthew opened his gospel with, Yeshua is one of us. Um, when Matthew would say he's a Ben Avraham, that would also bring people's minds back to the literal son of Abraham. Who is the literal son of Abraham? Isaac, Yitzchak. So in Hebrew, he's Yitzchak ben Avraham. And there are distinct parallels between Yitzchak ben Avraham and Yeshua ben Avraham. I want to point out four of those to you. Uh, firstly, they were both miracle babies. Everybody say miracle babies. They would not have happened if it wasn't for a miracle. Uh, we talked about that last week when we talked about the birth of Messiah, the King Messiah from a virgin. Um, man, Yeshua is even more of a miracle. I mean, like, a lady when she's 90 having a baby, that's pretty impressive. But a lady who's never had relationships with a man and that level having a baby, that's, that's flabbergasting. So, that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, Yitzhak ben Avraham and Yeshua were both only begotten sons. They were both beloved sons. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a very short passage here. Uh, if you want to flip to it. Maybe I'll make a little noise. I'll go, doo -doo -doo, and that means flip to the next slide. So, doo -doo -doo, um, Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. The, the Holy One speaks to Avraham, and this is what he says. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak. Now, this is a quandary because Abraham had more than one son. And he loved 
more than one son. So how could it say this? There's some, there's a, there's some commentary in the Midrash, which was kind of like the Jewish commentary from 2,000 years ago. This stuff was around in Yeshua's time. Sometimes he references it or something that he says is similar to the Midrash. This is what the Midrash uh, on Genesis has to say. This, the Jewish sages are talking, and they're, um, this, is, this is the little dialogue that they, that they give to help us maybe picture it. So the Holy One says this to Abraham, and then Abraham says, okay, so he says, um, Take now your son. And Abraham says, Which son? And the Holy One says, Your only son. And Abraham says, But each is the only son of his mother. Remember Isaac and Ishmael? Well, each one is the only son of his mother. And the Holy One says, Whom you love. And Abraham says, I love them both. And the Holy One says, Isaac. <laughs> and of course, this is, this, is, this is a made-up story, right? It's kind of humorous, but it helps, us, it helps us stop and notice, wait a minute, he had more than one son. Why was Isaac called the only son? Why was he the, the one called the beloved son? And uh, the Midrash goes on to say, with that very question, why didn't he reveal it to him without delay? Like, why didn't he just tell him straight up, take Isaac? And the answer from the Jewish sages is, in order to make him even more beloved in his eyes. So the idea is, he was underscoring to Abraham, Isaac's like your only son, your only begotten son. Isaac is your really beloved son. So in the Jewish world, if you ask, who is the only begotten son, the beloved son, they would say, the son of Abraham. And who is Yeshua? The son of Abraham, that's right. The Father also says, in Matthew chapter 3, this is my, what? Beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So like the Father, when He would look at Yeshua, He would have such good feelings about Yeshua. Like Yeshua made His Abba really happy. Like the Father in Heaven, He really liked Yeshua. He really likes Yeshua. That's the idea there. I want to give you a practical assignment. This doctrine of Yeshua being the only begotten Son, the Beloved Son. I'm going to give you a practical assignment from this doctrine. Um, often when we pray today, maybe we'll be feeling down, we'll be feeling depressed, maybe our self-esteem will feel totally gutted, maybe we'll feel suicidal, whatever, you name it, right? Very often what we, what we do in times like that is we focus on how God loves us. We say, God loves me. God really loves me. And you know what? That's a good thing. You need to know that. You need to feel that deeply. That is a truth. And often if you're attacked spiritually, that will be something that will be attacked. However... I'm going to give you a bigger picture for how to pray. Um, there, there's, there's, a, there's a famous business, uh, business guru and sales trainer na named Brian Tracy, and he likes to write about like, psychology and stuff too. And one of the things that he says you should do when you're feeling down, if you really want to get psyched up, is you should say over and over to yourself, I like myself. I like myself. And I'm, I'm not recommending you do this, right? But I'm saying from a pop psychology viewpoint... This is a big thing. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Say things like, I like myself. I like myself. I like myself. I like myself. And actually, if, if you do want to have, if you really, do it sometime just for kicks because it's funny, right? It's even better if you do it when your family's in the room and you jump up and down and say it over and over really loud. I like myself. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, I really like myself, yeah. But anyway, um, sometimes, you know, we almost do that in prayer. Except we, we insert God there instead of I, right? He likes me, he likes me. And that's cool. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to realize. He really likes you. Like, the whole love thing, it's kind of cliched sometimes. Oh yeah, he loves you. But he does like you. He really likes you in Yeshua. And uh, here's, here's, here's a further practical assignment for you though. It's not all about you. It's all about Yeshua. And you are a beloved child, but the really, really beloved child is Yeshua. So here's, here's something for you. Next time you're feeling empty, you're just not feeling the love or whatever, focus on Yeshua and just be like, wow, Father, you really love Yeshua. Father, you really like Yeshua. Like when you look at your son, actually what we're going to do is I think if we can just have our comments and stuff at the end, that'll be good. Like when you, when you look at your son, your face beams. You're so proud of him. And when you do that, it takes your eyes off yourself, which is often the first step out of like self-pity and all that stuff. And it puts your eyes on Yeshua, who is glorious. 
And when you begin to see the Father's love, I guarantee you it will radiate on you too. So that's something you can do. Just, just enter into the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Look at the Father and say, Father, wow, how much you love your Son. Look at Yeshua and say, wow, Yeshua. The Father loves you so much. You're the beloved Son. And before you know it, you will be swept up in the fellowship of what is often called the Godhead. That's a practical assignment that you can, that you can do, especially if you have more of a contemplative leaning in prayer. Uh, thirdly, Isaac is the one who would receive the promises especially the hallmark promise of the land of Israel. So when Jewish people hear that Yeshua is the ben Avraham, like Isaac, immediately that should register Yeshua is the recipient of the covenant promises. So if Isaac was promised that he will inherit the land of Israel, then the ultimate fulfillment of that will be in Yeshua, the ultimate ben Avraham, inheriting a geographical territory that is hotly disputed today. It includes the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and even includes parts of the country surrounding Israel. Ooh, that's really political. But you know what? When Yeshua comes back, it's all His. The Father is going to inherit that to Him. Uh, this is an important point because there is a massive battle going on on a global level today for the land of Israel between at least two world religions. Islam says, the land of Israel is ours. We are the beloved son. We are the inheritor of the promises. Judaism says, the land of Israel is ours. We are the beloved son. We are the inheritance of, inheritor of the promises. Uh, historically, even uh, the Roman Catholic Church has gotten involved and said, you know, in, let's say in the Crusader era, era, Jerusalem is ours. We are the beloved son. We should rule Jerusalem. This is a big, hot topic. And as disciples of Yeshua is monarchists who believe that our king is returning to inherit the land of Israel, we say, actually, Yeshua is the beloved son, and he is returning, and he will rule from Jerusalem, and he will inherit the land of Israel. And those who are his will join him there. It reminds me of Joshua, the great general of Israel. Remember he saw this massive dude with a sword? It was the messenger of Yahweh himself. And he said, whose side are you on? Are you on our side? or our enemy's side. And in Hebrew, the first words off the lips of the messenger is, Lo! Do you know what lo means? No. He's like, No, Joshua. And then he said, I'm the captain of the hosts of heaven. In other words, it's not about whose side I'm on. The question is, whose side are you on, Joshua? Are you on my side? Because you just met your superior. That's the idea there. And it's still true today. The question is, isn't who is who... The question is, whose side are you on? And ultimately, the only thing that's going to matter is who is on the side of the anointed king, Yeshua, the ultimate Ben Avraham. So, if, um, yeah, I'll give, here, here's, here's a passage that underscores that concept really well. In Galatians 3.16, Shaul, uh, Paul has this to say, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Everybody say seed. Then he points out, he doesn't say, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is who? Mashiach. So all the promises in the Bible, yes, you get to share in them because you're in Yeshua, but ultimately, those promises were made to the Messiah. So if, if you are a Muslim, and I know none of you here are, but we've been getting geared up to talk to anybody who comes into our midst. There's a Muslim community here in Prince Albert. I want to equip you as Yeshua's disciples to represent him to the Muslim world and the Muslim community here. So if you're a Muslim, if you're talking to Muslims, seriously consider this. Yeshua is the true son of Abraham. In, in Arabic, you would say the true eh baneh Ibrahim. Yeshua is the true eh baneh Ibrahim. And he's returning to inherit the land of Israel. And Yeshua is not a Muslim. Yeshua is the king of the Jewish people. He will rule from the midst of a restored Israel, where the tribes of Israel will be regathered, according to Ezekiel 40-48. to And if you're a Muslim, then you believe that, that Yeshua was never crucified, he never, in the sense of him dying, and that when he comes back, he'll reign for about 40 years and then he'll die. That's actually not true. Yeshua was actually crucified. He did actually die. And there was solid witness evidence there from eyewitnesses. When he comes back, he will rule forever. That's the Messiah, the true king. Um, Jewish people, if you're Jewish, perhaps you would say, well, I am a true son of Abraham, and the land of Israel belongs to us because God 
uh, God gave it to us by right. And that is true. If you are a Jewish person or a member of Israel, then that is true. You do have rights to the land of Israel. Paul made that very clear in Romans 9-11. to However, let me ask you, if you're not a believer in Yeshua and you're a Jewish person, is the God of Abraham really your God? I don't mean, is he the God of the people at your synagogue, your shul? I don't mean, is he the God of your family? I'm talking about, is he personally your God? Do you as an individual believe in him? Do you love him like Abraham, our, our national forefather? It's written that Abraham believed Elohim. That was his hallmark. That's what made him a covenant guy. Do you actually study the Tanakh and believe the self-disclosure of the Almighty for yourself? Or do you just believe what other people tell you? Do you just spend most of your time in the Talmud? If you're Jewish, I, I ask you this. Because it could be that you're just going through the motions. It could be that you're just doing what other people tell you and believing that. You need to go on a pursuit of Him for yourself. He needs to be your God, just like He was the God of your father Abraham. And if you just feel empty inside and dead, and like you're unable to believe Him, that's because that you're, that's right. You, you are empty. You are dead. You are unable to believe Him outside of Yeshua, filling you with the same spirit of faith that filled Abraham. Yeshua is the key there. Uh, the second title that Yeshua is called is the King of the Jews. Everybody say, King of the Jews. So he's the son of Abraham, and he's the king of the Jews. In the book of Deuteronomy, it gives a very important requirement for king. It says he has to be from your own brothers. He has to be a man of Israel. Yeshua is from the Jewish people. That's the idea here. When it says the king of the Jews, it's saying Yeshua is from the Jewish people. He identifies fully with the Jewish people. Get this. When Yeshua talked about the Jewish people, he didn't say them and they. He said us and we. I'll give you a passage. Um, John chapter 4, verse 22. This is Yeshua talking to the lady, the Samaritan lady at the well. And he says, You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Did you notice that? When Yeshua referred to the Jewish people, he said, We worship what we know. He fully identified and he fully identifies with the Jewish people, which is a very far cry from some of the early church literature. If you read, for instance, the Epistle of Barnabas, it's like, it's virulently anti-Semitic. It's full of Jew hatred and polemics, and it never talks about Israel as we. It always says them, they, etc. So I encourage you, see yourself as, like Ruth, a part of the nation of Israel. When you watch Israel on the news, when you talk about them, start saying we. Start taking it personally. Start saying us and just see if that doesn't help you to be more in Yeshua's mindset. So that's a practical assignment for you. When you talk about Israel and Jewish people, say us and we. Kind of like Glenn Beck did recently when he gave a speech in Israel. That's all, that was awesome. Uh, John Gill, who was like the spiritual grandfather of Charles Spurgeon, he was a reformed Baptist preacher in the early 1700s. I love his commentary because he just has it, he has it full of traditional Jewish sources that help explain the texts. Um, this is his comment on this text. Christ puts himself among them, for he was a Jew, as the woman took him to be. And get this, did you notice that twice in the book of Matthew, this title, King of the Jews, surfaces? And in both occasions, it was not planned. It was almost like this freak occurrence. These guys come from the East, totally unscripted, and they're like, there was a baby born, and he's going to be the King of the Jews, and we're looking for him. And then what else happens? At the end of the Gospel, when Yeshua is being crucified, it was not his idea. It was not the idea of his apostles. It was the idea of Pontius Pilate. He had something written and nailed over his head. And ironically enough, what did it say? This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. I mean, like the irony of that is so thick. And it's so striking too. You know, you know what really hits me about that? That's the title that came up when Yeshua was born and when he died. Could it be that like, that's a deep passion in his heart? Could it be that Yeshua was born to be the king of the Jewish people, and that he died to be the king of the Jewish people. Now is that all he was born and died for? Of course not. He is passionate for the nations. He is so about seeing the gospel reach mankind in general. But sometimes we kind of forget about this other element of his heart. He's passionate about the Jewish people. So, what that means is that Yeshua, as Islam teaches, 
will not come back and Islamize the planet and convert all the people of the book to Islam. Yeshua is not going to come back and convert all the Jewish people to Islam. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. When Yeshua comes back, he's also not going to liquidate Israel and make all the Jewish people Gentiles. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. Yeah. Um, the third title that we see in, um, in the book of Matthew, applied to Yeshua, is, um, he is He is Israel. Now it doesn't explicitly say this. You have to read the other half of the verse that isn't quoted. You remember that the exile of the master as a baby down to Egypt happened to fulfill an ancient prophecy. The ancient prophecy was in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And this is what it says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now is this talking about literal physical Israel? Yes, it was. Was it also talking about the Messiah? Yes, it was. Matthew 2 quotes this as being about Messiah. This is really important. The apostolic writers would frequently take verses out of context, out of their like linguistic, historical, original context, and they would apply them to Messiah, and that's good. That's okay. Because actually the word is all about Yeshua. So there are different levels of scripture interpretation, right? So let me ask you, if the second half of this verse is about the master as a baby, out of Egypt I called my son, could it be that the first half of this verse is also about the master? When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Yes. Yeshua was beloved by the father when he was a teenager, when he was learning the trade of carpentry, when he would go to the synagogue, when he was just learning the texts of the Torah. The father really loved him. So, Yeshua is Israel. Uh, this was actually a big thing in the early Yeshua movement. To the early Christians, they were like, yes, Yeshua, one of his titles is Israel. Uh, an example of this would be um, in Justin Martyr's Apology. He references this several times, chapter 75, chapter 100, and chapter 135. I'll read you a quote from that last chapter. Um, Justin Martyr, he was like all human beings, not all of his theology was straight, but he did an, a powerful job uh, preaching Yeshua to the Greco-Roman world and to uh, the Greek philosophers specifically. And um, it's interesting reading him. He lived like about a hundred years after the master, uh, Master's ascension, and it gives us a good feel for how the early believers thought, how they read certain passages. So uh, Justin Martyr, in chapter 135, has this to say. As therefore Christ is the Israel and the Jacob, so there's, there's him and who he is, even so we who have been quarried out from the bowels of Christ are the true Israelitic race. So did you hear that? The early Christian movement saw themselves as part of the, quote, Israelitic race because Yeshua is the ultimate Israel. It's who he is. And when you are quarried out from his bowels, to use that old expression, that's who you are too. So I really like that. I like that quote. Unfortunately, he went on to say, that means you're not the real Israel. We're, we Christians are the real Israel, and you Jews aren't the real Israel anymore. You're a bunch of write-offs. That's sad. That part wasn't true. Um, here, here, here's, a, here's a passage that I really love that depicts Yeshua like this. John chapter 1, verse 47 says this, Yeshua saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Look, a son of Israel indeed, in whom there's no deceit. You know the expression, it takes one to know one? It's really true. It meant something to Yeshua to be a son of Israel. So when he saw another guy who was a real son of Israel, Yeshua couldn't help but say, look at this guy. This guy's the real thing. This is something that I like. I noticed this. And he pointed it out. This guy's a real son of Israel. Uh, two more titles of the Messiah that pop up in Matthew chapter 2 are quotes from uh, the book of Micah, chapter 5, the prophet Micah. And uh, this is what it says. You can read it with me if you want. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his Elohim, his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. That means all the way to Saskatchewan. 
Because if you look at where Israel is and then you look like concentrically out, man, I mean, BC is even more, BC is like the end of the earth. We're pretty close in Saskatchewan. It would be great even to Saskatchewan. So you'll notice there, there are two titles of the Mashiach in this passage. Firstly, it says he's a ruler. The Hebrew word for ruler is Moshel. Everybody say Moshel. I would spell that M-O-S-H-E-L. Moshel. And then the second, the second thing that he is in this passage is a shepherd or a pastor. We'll look at that second one in a second. Um, Moshel. That word is translated as a ru- like ruler, but it's a really big word. And I want to read to you, um, I have here a book called The Etymological Dictionary of Biblical Hebrew. Stuff like this really turns me on. I love etymological dictionaries. And um, this, this is based on the research of the ideological founder of conservative Judaism. There are two conservative synagogues in Saskatoon, and they are part of a movement that was started in the 1800s by this rabbi, whose name was Samson Raphael Hirsch. He's very well known in Judaism. His scholarship is, is very uh, well respected. And um, what Hirsch did is he took Hebrew words and he took their roots and then he expounded on them. He looked at every place where that root turned up in the Hebrew Bible and then he gave a a fuller feeling for each of these words. And I love this because it makes these Hebrew words come alive. So his research makes this title of Messiah, Moshel, come alive. This is his his, um, amplification of this term. Moshel means to determine role or character, to rule by command. So the one who defines or determines a rule or character, or who rules by command. And then he has a couple, he has several verses where each of these these meanings is highlighted. I'm not going to read them all to you, but I'll just list them for you. Ruling, number one. Two, designating character. So did you get that? A person who defines a people group or a nation in Hebrew is a moshel, a ruler. Um, being completely in charge, kind of like Genevieve's dad has a shirt that says um, something similar. God is in control. If, you, if that shirt said Yeshua is in, the con- in control, that would be the idea of moshel. Um, four, a historian tying events together. One of the translations of moshel is a historian who ties events together. Yeshua is a historian. He's all about history. When you look at Yeshua, history will all of a sudden make sense. All the major events in history, especially covenantal history between the creator of the universe and his people, they're tied together in the Mashiach. Uh, five, a parable instructing behavior. One of, the, one, of the, one of the ways that this word Moshel comes up is as a parable. The book of Proverbs is called Mishlei. Everybody say Mishlei. It's translated as Proverbs, but it's the same word as a ruler. What does this mean? Let's, let's, let's unpack that for a second. There's something about a, pro, a proverb or a parable that defines the way people think, that designates character, maybe even on a national level. Uh, what would be some examples from the pagan world? Uh, Greek mythology, those were like this word, okay? They were parables, and they defined the character of the Greek culture. Greek heroes and, and pseudo-gods were immoral, so Greeks were immoral. That's, that's kind of the idea here. So, think about this. What was, what, what was the famous technique that Yeshua employed when he was talking to people? He told a lot of stories. Like, he wasn't a dry theologian. He did not walk around, like, trying to get people to go to four-hour systematic theology classes. He would just kind of walk around and tell, like, little stories. And people would be like, Wow, it's the great rabbi, I can't wait to hear him. And they'd go to hear him, and he'd, like, sit there, and he'd tell a couple of stories about a farmer and about a, you know, about a... Uh, a business business deal and then he would walk off and they'd be like that was it? what was that? that's the idea behind Yeshua as a Moshel about a ruler who tells parables and through those parables he, he was like defining the character of his kingdom he was communicating like what it was all about so I, I really love that nuance uh, the, last, the last one here you can read is an example or type Actually, there are two more. Example or type, that's Yeshua. And then finally, the last one that sometimes turns up in Hebrew is as a pun or a joke. Sometimes this word means a pun or a joke in Hebrew. Is Yeshua something of a, a pun? Yes, some of his sayings are hard to figure out. Uh, you know, often they're called the difficult, the difficult sayings of Jesus. Um, is he a joke? 
No, but he's a joyous person, and some people mock him in a jo joking way. So maybe what that goes to say is, if you are a real ruler, yeah, people are going to mock you and make jokes about you. It comes with the territory. So that, uh, that hopefully gives us a fuller feel of who Yeshua is as a ruler. Often today, people try and make Yeshua out in their image. So the communists say he was a communist. The uh, Orthodox Jews say, well, okay, most, many of them won't, but some, some of them will say, yeah, Yeshua was an Orthodox Jew. Or Karaites will say, yes, he was a Karaite. Um, you name it. Like Everybody likes to try and make Jesus out in their image and make him the patron saint of their cause. That often happens. The idea of Yeshua as a Moshel, one who defines is to say, no, you don't put Yeshua in your box and define him. You come into his box and, and, and he, let him define you. And that's going like, to like, shoot you out of every other box that you're in. Because he just doesn't fit in human society. He's there to define human society. He's there to define Messianic Judaism and, uh, and our movement. That's the idea. And that really excites me. Um, the next title here in this passage, it says that he is the shepherd or the pastor. I kind of like thinking of Yeshua as a pastor because that's who he is and that means a shepherd, right? So um, let's see. In Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 15, it says this, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. I want to I look with you at this concept of a shepherd based on the research of uh, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch also because it really brought it to life for me. Um, the uh, Hebrew word for a shepherd is uh, roeh. Everybody say roeh? Yeah. And the verb is spelled resh ein hey, uh, ra'ah. And it means to, to shepherd. And um, it means to tend or to satisfy needs. So the idea of a shepherd is tending people and satisfying people's needs. He breaks it down based on several verses as leading to pasture, grazing, wandering and tending, being neighborly and concerned. Actually, I got a really cool little I got I got a really cool little opportunity to be neighborly and concerned this morning because like all of the vehicles had really thick frost on the windows. And I was like running around our house in our basement trying to find our scraper because we moved and nothing is where it's supposed to be. And so we got out to the van and I was scraping the windows and I noticed that a couple of vehicles down there was a lady with her, her little kids and they were sitting in their van and she was trying to scrape the windows with the windshield wiper because obviously she didn't have a scraper out either. It was like chunk, 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 chunk for like five, a couple of minutes and I was like, that's not doing anything but she's really not giving up. And you could at least be out there with your fingernails. I'm sure lots of us in Saskatchewan have done that. So I, you know, I was like, I have my scraper. Yes. So I got to go over and scrape her window for her. She was taking her little boy to the hospital because he was really sick. And so, you know, it was just a really cool little opportunity to, to be this word, to be neighborly and concerned. And when we do that with our neighbors and the people around us, you are becoming a shepherd in the biblical sense of the word. I love that. Um, it also means friend. Like in Shir HaShirim, when it talks about a friend, it's the same word for shepherd. There's this interplay there, right? I don't know what that's all about, but that, that's, that's another word. And then it also means unified nation. Why? Because when a nation has true leadership, when it is shepherded by people who have integrity and are strong, that nation will, will be a unified nation. That also applies to movements and communities. And then also means pasture land. So when it talks about Yeshua being a shepherd, it means all of those things. Don't you love that? Doesn't it give you a fuller sense of who he is as a shepherd? Yeah. And then, of course, we also have this passage. If Yeshua is the ultimate pastor or shepherd, then Yeshua is the one who like, is really in touch with the Father's heart. He doesn't just talk on an intellectual level. When Yeshua talks to you, or when Yeshua talks to someone in our culture, He talks to their heart. If you're a male, this will be a little bit harder for you to comprehend or to maybe do sometimes. Because, okay, this is very stereotypic, but I think it's often true. Often when I watch, like, ladies get together, they'll talk on a personal level. They'll talk about, like, how are you doing and stuff like that. When guys get together, they often talk about things like the economy, the political arena, uh, taxes, uh, technology, stuff, 
sports, stuff like that, right? And I'm not saying that's always true, but you have to admit, sometimes us guys don't talk on a heart level as often. It's not our first reaction, okay? So get this. It doesn't just say that Yeshua as a pastor and pastoral types talk on a heart level, although there is that part. It also says they talk on a knowledge and understanding level. Knowledge and understanding means information and perspectives. Okay? Knowledge is information. Understanding is your perspective on something. And, uh, okay, guys are more into that, right? So we see both sides in the master. A, a true pastor will be in touch with the heart of the father, will talk on a heart level, and a true pastor will also communicate correct information. So a real pastor should be giving you like historical facts, statistics, uh, quotes from sources, and real perspectives on real life scenarios and international concerns. So pastors do. Not just one, not just the other, both. And you know what? Every one of us in this room are called to be a pastor, to take care of the people in our lives. So, you know, these are two areas we can grow in. I'm going to give you a practical assignment. It, it, it seems like, generally speaking, people are either more emotionally oriented or mentally oriented. So either you'll be more about, like, your feelings, and if you're down, you're really down, and if you're up, you're really up, and, um, you know, like, like, you kind of relate on an emotional level, or you will be more, like, mentally oriented, where you really love to think, you love intelligent conversations, you love all the, you know, facts and statistics that I just mentioned. Most of you in this room will be either one or the other. Like, you'll have, you'll have a strength towards one or proclivity towards it. Um, and we also tend to relate to the creator of the universe on that level that we are strong in, and sometimes to like not understand people who don't. Okay, So if you're all about the heart of God, like it says in this passage, you're going to be all about that relational aspect, about connecting with Him, and, and things like that. And that's really good. But you may have a tendency to not see the place for information, for historical facts and statistics, and for perspectives on big, big stuff. Now, so the, the answer is, or you may not even like, reading the Bible might not even connect so much for you because you just want to sing and play your instrument because that's what really does it for you. For you, my suggestion would be, you know, you'll have to focus on growing in your understanding of the word, on having, cultivating a, a real love for, for history that's relevant and that kind of thing. And you know, you'll have to put up with guys like me because that's the level I talk on. <laughs> and you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a part for that. Now, if you're a person, I'm more like this. If you're someone who is more mentally oriented and you like to think and you like to study, the challenge for you will be to break out of your brain and stay in touch with your heart and learn to relate from your heart and talk to the Father from your heart and pray from your heart. And for some of us, that's a big challenge. If we are in a certain mold and we've, we've been conditioned to think a certain way for years, it will be a challenge for some of us men to break out of our brain mold and, and learn to also operate from our hearts. David was a great example of that. I think David was probably more emotionally oriented. Like when David was up, he was really up. And when he was down, he was really down. Like, read the Psalms. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, David, like when they were bringing the ark up, he was a man, and he was dancing wildly. So, you know, if, for those of us who are more stuck in our brains, that's good, but your challenge will be to break out in the heart of Elohim and learn to dance and learn to be passionate. And don't be scared to show it, because in the kingdom, in the kingdom culture, real men do dance, real men do show emotion, and it's okay. Because Yeshua is the ultimate man, and he defines masculinity, and Yeshua wasn't a really cold, stiff dude. And he didn't always walk around talking from his head. He had a really big heart. He's the ultimate son of David. So um, there's some practical assignments for both sides based on this concept of a shepherd who is after the heart of Elohim and who also feeds people on knowledge and understanding. Um, at the end of Matthew chapter 2, it says that Yeshua would be called a Nazarene. Everybody say Nazarene. Nazarene. Now, a lot of people mistake that to mean he was a Nazarite, like he had long hippie hair, which is probably why in most of the artistic depictions you'll see of Yeshua, he had long hippie hair, even though most Christian cultures that produce that art say that for, it's a shame for men to have long hair. I just really don't understand that, that, whole, uh, that whole paradigm. It's kind of like, man, why does Jesus always have long hair? Um, in the Jewish world, he probably had short hair. Yeah. 
Yeah, he, he did not have blue eyes either. That'll be a shock to some people. He actually wasn't very Caucasian at all. Um, but th- that doesn't mean that he was a Nazarite. It's actually a reference to an ancient prophecy about the Messiah from the book of Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 11. Let's read that verse together. It's in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. And this is what it says. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, the Hebrew word there is netzer, from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. And then it goes on to say it's the, the seven spirits of the Holy One. So get this. The Hebrew word for a branch is netzer. That is the Hebrew word that the town of Nazareth, or Nazareth, was named after. Uh, you remember most of, the, most of the people in Nazareth were related to each other. It was like a big extended family, Hickville, and they were really backwards, and that's where Joseph was from. They probably named their village Nazareth, or Branch Town, because they knew that they were a family that was descended from David, and they had hopes that the Messiah, the King of Israel, would maybe even come from their family. That's probably how Nazareth got its name. So when Yeshua is called the Nazarene, it's a reference to this prophecy. He is the branch that grew. Um, and, and if you read the chapter before that, it's talking about how Israel was chopped down by the Assyrians, and all that was left was a stump. But the stump didn't die, and it, did, it wasn't left like that. It says there's going to be a shoot that comes up out of that stump. How many of you have seen trees where the main trunk was chopped off, but a branch grew up and a new tree developed? That's the idea. There's going to be a chopping off. Israel's going to be decimated, but there's going to be a shoot that comes up. And the thing isn't dead. And that's Yeshua. That's the idea here. It's, a, it's like the continuation of the Davidic dynasty, the new branch of David's kingly line. It's the Netzer. Now, I want to give you a picture of this from Prince Albert. Um, there's a situation. How many of you walk by the river in Prince Albert? Uh, how many of you have seen... Yeah, you guys, I've even seen you. How many of you have seen that area of pavement down, like, way on the far west side, where there are all of these shoots coming up right through the asphalt and, like, trashing the sidewalk? What's that? Yeah, far on the east side, sorry. I took a couple, I went there yesterday and I took a couple pics for you. Because it's too cool. And it's a picture of Yeshua. I'm sorry, that's not super visible. Could someone go and just flick the lights for us for a second? Okay. They actually put, like there's a whole stretch of like, of pavement where there are all of these like upheavals from these chutes, these netzers. And uh, they have it blocked off on either side. So you can see that at the beginning they have that block. There's like, there's a honking tree growing up through the pavement there. And then I have one more picture that I took of you, uh, of it for you. See, you can see a bunch of other ones. They, they chopped out a bunch of these little ones that were heaving up through the pavement, but they didn't take out the tree yet. I don't know, it would be kind of cool if they left it there, just growing right through the sidewalk. Like... Five decades from now, there'll be this huge tree and people will have to go around it. I think that would be awesome. You can turn the lights back on. Thank you. But that's, that is a picture of the Messiah as the shoot. It's like, yes, there is resistance. Yes, there is this physical matter of flesh that would fight against his spirit and resist him. But he is invincible. He's unstoppable. And he will penetrate through everything that stands against him. He will pierce through it. And that's a picture of you and me too. Because in our spiritual lives, we will find resistance. We will fight temptations. We will have addictions that need to be broken. We will have times when we feel like spiritual sludge and we do not want to get out of bed. We do not want to pray. That's usually how I pray in the morning. I find a cup of coffee really helps me to lift that spiritual sludge from my soul, you know? But that's, that's me. But the idea is, you and I are shoots like that too. And Yeshua's spirit is growing up through us and it's like an unstoppable growth. So give into it and just, it's going to happen. Let it happen. That's the idea. Um, those sprouts, those nets airs, you could see they were causing some pretty serious upheaval, hey? That's a picture of Mashiach. Like, he comes into the physical world. He comes into the world order as we see it, and his kingdom comes through, through his people, like us, and it will cause upheaval. It will change things. Because he's turning the world right side up. Uh, you remember in the book of Acts, when Yeshua's guys would come to town, they would usually start riots, often. Like, like, people would be freaking out. People would try and kill them. Because they were so radical. Because they were like these shoots from another kingdom that were entering into society and beginning to cause upheaval. And people knew what was happening. They knew our status quo is being changed right now. Our gods are being challenged. They knew like, if this message continues to grow, we're done. 
And so they would freak out. They would riot. They'd try and kill these guys. But that's the picture of Yeshua as the Netzer, the Nazarene. And that's the picture of us as Nazarene congregations. Do you remember in the book of Acts and in some of the last chapters, one of the accusations that was leveled against Paul was that he was a ringleader of a sect, a Jewish sect. And they were called the Nazarenes. I really called that because they were followers of the Nazarene. They were followers of this guy who was the kingly shoot from the stump of Jesse. And you know what? They were causing a lot of trouble in Israel too. They were challenging the status quo. They were like turning their society right side up. And people were freaking out about it. So that's the idea of Yeshua as the Nazarene. I will give you one last title of the Mashiach from this, uh, this passage. I think this is the one that's been most meaningful to me. Yeah, especially in tough times. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, the messenger just says to, uh, to Miriam, uh, sorry, to, uh, to, to Yosef, uh, says she, she's going to bear a son and call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And, okay, in English, it's like, what's the connection? Call his name Jesus because he'll save his people. Does Jesus mean Savior or something? Actually, there's a parallel passage that I really love. My buddies and I kind of like puzzled over this one when I was little. In the book of Jeremiah, um, just when he was like a young prophet, when he, was, when he was being mentored by the Ruach HaKodesh, and he was growing in his gifting, he had this little vision. It's in uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11. And this, this is like the first vision he has. It says, The word of Yahweh came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Okay. Then he always said to me, You've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And I remember my buddy Kirk, when we were like 16, we'd get together and we would just burn spiritually together and pray half the night and stuff. And we, he was like, this does not make any sense. What do you see, Jeremiah? Uh, a branch of an almond tree. That's right. And I'm watching over my word to perform it. It's like, eh, eh, eh. Like, I'm having a mental disconnect here. I don't get it. And if you read the Hebrew, the word for watching over something is shakad. And the word for an almond is the same word. It's the same verbal root, right? So he's saying, it's kind of cool. Like the creator is actually into wordplay and puns, evidently. So he shows, he shows Jeremiah a shakade, and then he says, that's right, Jeremiah, because I am shakade over my word to perform it. Like, seriously, that is a pun, you guys. That is Hebrew wordplay. And this was like the level that the Creator was communicating with his friend Jeremiah. It's kind of cool. It's the same thing here. The, word, the name Yeshua means salvation in Hebrew. So in English, you'd have the idea of call your son salvation because he's going to save his people. I love that. That's why, we call, that's why we call our Savior Yeshua in our community. Jesus, I have no problems with the name Jesus. It's just that often it doesn't communicate very well who he really is. Because a lot of people have a lot of really weird impressions about Jesus, and there are all kinds of false versions of Christ out there. When you call him by his Hebrew name Yeshua, it underscores really well who you're talking about. And also, that's a Hebrew word that means salvation. So every time you're saying that, you are saying, Yeshua's salvation, Yeshua's salvation. That's just powerful. Yeah. Um, actually, this is something that the early Christians were into also, the early Greek-speaking Christians. I, I, uh, in, um, again, in um, Justin Martyr, um, in his apology, it was like his huge defense of faith in Messiah to the Greco-Roman world. He has this to say in chapter 23. He says, The name Jesus in the Hebrew language means Savior in the Greek tongue. And then he has the Greek word there for Savior. So actually, Justin Martyr pointed out, you know, the name Jesus, or Jesus in Greek, in Hebrew it actually means Savior. So this was something that was really close to the hearts of the early, uh, like, early believers in Yeshua who, who weren't Hebrew speakers necessarily. How did Justin Martyr know that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe even Greek-speaking believers in Yeshua who were not Jews at all, maybe they called Jesus Yeshua. Because it seemed to be something that was meaningful to Justin Martyr. So... Take note of that. There is, there, is, there is probably historical precedence in the early church for calling Jesus by his original Hebrew name based on this quote from Justin Martyr. Notice something. Notice something in this verse. Oh, you, you can back up to that verse. It says, it doesn't say, call his name Yeshua for he will save his people from Roman oppression. 
It doesn't say, for he will save his people from the Third Reich. It doesn't say, because he will save his people from existential threats from Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. What does it say? It says, he'll save his people from their sins. That's different. That's a really different paradigm. Why? Why did he say he'll save his people from their sins? This is why. Because in the Torah, the Almighty promised that Yahweh would save his people from external threats, from aggressors, from nations that would attack them. He promised military victory. He promised that they would have shalom in their land if something. It's conditional. If you listen to my voice, if you're true to my covenant, if you keep my commandments. In other words, if you don't sin. So, existential threats to Israel are a symptom of sin. Now let me ask you, in the medical world, do you treat the symptom or do you treat the disease? You treat the disease. You treat the disease. Okay, unfortunately, often we don't. Often we'll just pop pills and pharmaceuticals and try and treat the symptoms. But that doesn't work long term, does it? So, this is really good news for Israel. The really good news is, it's not just about educating yourself better in Torah and Talmud. It's not just about trying harder. It's not about you and your choices. It's about Yeshua's power to save you and change you from the inside out. And that's really good news for a lot of Jewish people. Because the gospel that most Jewish people have heard isn't a gospel. It's, well, you know, try harder, make the right decisions, modify your behavior, and just do what's right. And you know what? Most Israelis are not... Like, they're not orthodox religious because they can't. They just say, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. So this is really good news for Israel. Yeshua says, I will come and I will save you. I will change you and turn, like, from the inside out. I will actually move you by the power of my Spirit to do the Torah and not to sin. We don't have a Jewish community here in Prince Albert, so maybe some of, you, some of you are like, you know, this doesn't really immediately relate to me, but if you are Messianic, if you're in a Messianic congregation, you're on a collision course with the Jewish people. You're going to con- come in contact with Jewish people, I guarantee you. So just hold that in your mind. That's why I continue to kind of point these things out, because I want to be equipped to represent Mashiach accurately to the Jewish community. So you know what? Often today, people will pray like, God, you know... Just deal with Hamas and strike down Hezbollah and silence Ahmadinejad and Iran and all this stuff. And I suggest you praying like that is actually treating the symptom instead of the disease. Ahmadinejad is not the disease. He is a symptom. The disease is sin. And when Israel repents and like turns away from sin, guys like that aren't even going to be around. It says in the book of Proverbs, when a man's ways are pleasing to Yahweh... He even makes his enemies to be at shalom with him. So when your ways are pleasing to him, he will make your enemies your friends. That's that's what it says. And actually that's a verse that's very popular in the Jewish outlook when it comes to interpersonal relationships. You'll also notice here that it doesn't say in this verse, call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from clinical depression or physical ailments or anything else that, you know, counselors, therapists, shrinks, doctors are dedicated to dealing with. Now let me ask you, did Yeshua come to save people from depression? Yes. Did He come to heal people physically? Yes. But is that what this verse says? No. And why is that? Because those things, again, are symptoms of sin. All of this mess that we as humans are in, all the brokenness and the dysfunction and the darkness, it's a symptom of sin. So when when the root of sin is dealt with, all that stuff will disappear. That's good news. It's really good news. When I was like in my mid-teens, I had a God encounter. I really began to wake up spiritually, and it was really, really hard. Seriously. Because like, I just had all this spiritual light shining on me, and I could see all this crud in my heart. And I was like, I, I have so much disgusting stuff in my life. And it wasn't, it wasn't condemnation, right? It wasn't hopelessness. It was like hardcore conviction. And like this verse was the verse that like, kept me going every day. This was like the verse I hung my life on. Like, call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. So I was like, yes. Like, Yeshua's going to save me from all this crud that he's showing me in my heart. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to save myself. He's, I'm going to let him do it. And he's going to do it. Well, that's, that's, that's good news. Um, let me ask you, if you don't know what sin is, does this, is this verse going to mean anything to you at all? No. Not really. I want to give you a biblical definition of sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says this. 
Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. The Greek there is anomia. It means being without Torah. And sin is Torahlessness. Right? So let me ask you, what defines sin? Our culture today would say there is no such thing as sin. There is no objective standard of right or wrong. And all the people who say there is are wrong. Which I always find funny. It's like the, the, the ultra-tolerant people are tolerant of everyone except the intolerant, which is inconsistent. And the people who say there is no right and wrong often go on to rail against the fundamentalists who, of course, are wrong. It's like, I think you should take your own message to heart and just, sh like, shut up. Because, like, apply what you believe to your own life and quit saying that anybody's wrong because there's no such thing as right and wrong if you really believe that. Really, I mean, that would just, like, totally change the political scene right there if people took their own uh, philosophy to heart. And I love those people, but um, I think they need to uh, get a little more consistent. As believers in the creator of the universe, the God of the Bible, we believe that His word defines sin. And His word is His law. His law is His word. And in Hebrew, we call it His Torah. Torah defines sin. So when Yahweh says to do something in the Torah, and you don't do it, He says, that is sin. When Yahweh says, don't do something in the Torah, and you do it, he says, that is sin. Alright? Like seriously, often today, in the Christian world, we have no hard and fast definition of sin. Really, we don't. Often it's like, well, you know, whatever you feel like... I don't know, often we don't even talk about sin, really. It's not a very popular topic. But if we don't know what sin is, how are we going to let Yeshua save us from it and stuff, eh? How are we going to live it out? So. I, I really hope, I really hope for us as the body of Messiah that we return to God's Torah. Because beginning in the Pentateuch, that's the definition of sin. So I'll give you an example. When he says, my Shabbat's forever, it's an eternal covenant, don't work on Shabbat, and we work on Shabbat, according to the Bible, that's sin. Now, I understand, we are in exile. Some people have to work on Shabbat, right? They don't have a choice. I'm not talking about that. I'm just using that as an example. And we could go on and on, right? But like very often, we've just glossed over all the practical in instructions that are for the people of God today from like the Old Testament. And as a result, we have no hard and fast definition of sin. And we say, well, you know, basically they're just two commandments, love God, love people. And yeah, that's where it starts. But we need some definitions for what that actually looks like. So, it's good news. Yeshua came to save the Jewish people from violating the Torah. This, this is something... I'm going to give you another little thing to equip you for representing Yeshua to the Jewish people. Often Yeshua is totally misrepresented because Christians will come and say, Jesus came to set you free from the law. And what a Jew hears is, Jesus came to set you free from, what, what, from God's definition of sin so that you can sin all you want. Like, ouch! It's just not true. Or, you know, often believers in Jesus will go to Israel and they'll be like, yeah, these Jews, they're so religious, they have so many rules, you know, they just need to get free... And that, that's a really unhealthy attitude because when we go to Israel with that attitude, what we're saying is, I don't have a clue why Yeshua came. I don't have a clue why Yeshua, how, like, how the gospel is relevant to the Jewish people. What's relevant to Israel is to say Yeshua came to change you from the inside out so that you'll actually want to do the Torah. So that you'll quit breaking the Torah. That's the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 1. Yeah. Like the gospel, so that's for Israel. The gospel for our culture, it isn't a message of like, a lot of gospels out there today, let's say the, go, the gospel according to Oprah Winfrey would be like a gospel of self-help, behavioral modification, positive thinking, basically pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, straps like self-salvation. It doesn't work. Seriously, it doesn't work. For some people it works for a little while, but they often become really weird and shallow and freaky and then they judge everybody for whom it doesn't work. Right? The gospel, according to Matthew 1, is Yeshua is here to save you from your sins, and He'll do it if you let Him. That's simple. Yeah. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. 
and we would appreciate it if you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.